Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast. Here we hide among the covers of brilliant music books and write their lines down our spines. We're back for three very special episodes in the run-up to Christmas. Music books being good presents, although of course they last for life. I am, as always, your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, also available for Christmas, obviously. Um, it's a memoir that travels from my earliest memory of singing Abel, my grandma, to the magic of falling in love with prefab sprouts in a pandemic. On to today's guest, who is an author and a musician, so we've got a double whammy there. And his bandmate was our very first guest on Songbook Season 1, talking about the legendarily filthy anthology of fan letters, Starlust. He, we're back to my guest now, has written two novels, 2020's The Ruins, published by Repeater, and this year's Fantastical at the Ghost Theatre, published by Bloomsbury and many fabulous bass lines he's written as well, anchoring songs about chemical smiles and broken bones, as well as peep shows and discos from Spain to Camber Sands. Matt Osman, welcome to Songbook. How are you today? And where are you? I'm very well, Jude. How are you? I'm all right. Where am I? Yeah. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in northwest London in Kensal Rise, looking out over the city. Very nice. And I'm nosing your paperbacks and your books behind you. Can't quite see them, I, but I, that's one great thing about Zoom when you're a music journalist, has been have a little nose around. <laughs> exactly. And everyone everyone moves the more intellectual tones to, <laughs> to the front of the picture. Yeah, exactly. All my, all my comics are down the right. <laughs> oh, I'd like to see your comics. Well, there we are. Next, <laughs> next time, maybe. Um, so, Matt, um, let's get something straight to start with. I've always got the impression that Suede are a band of big readers. You know, you're all on the tour bus together, you know, propping up your paperbacks and getting achy necks. You know, I know, for instance, you know, Brett... Red Starlist on a European tour of yours after I suggested it to him, which was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Are you all like that? Uh, yeah, all of us apart from Simon, who who, who has just read, I think, three rock biographies, and that's it. <laughs> um, but the rest of us, yeah, we're constantly um, we're constantly reading things and swapping stuff. In fact, Neil is probably the, the best read of all of us. You know, he he studied, he studied Shakespeare at school, um, but. Yeah, it's it, especially when you're t- touring. There comes a moment when you just can't listen to any more music, right? Yes. Um, you just you get to the point that you don't want to. You don't want your ears full of music, you know. And and it's kind of you need to kind of calm down a little bit. Um, and it's it's pretty much always been books that that do that for us. Um, and there's plenty there's plenty of books that we've kind of like swapped between us when you know when things like like really really appeal. Um, and sometimes I'll read something, you know, if it's a family drama set in the Second World War, I'll know that Brett will like it. Mm. And if it's in, if it's impenetrable mon- modernism, it's kind of like, ah, Neil's going to like this one. <laughs> Give us some examples of the books you've shared. One thing that definitely got passed around was um, Birdsong by Sebastian Falks. That was something that that Brett absolutely loved. Um, I can remember, I can't remember where we were touring. I think it was Europe because it was one of those things that, 
this very strange thing where we took in turns to read it and then you'd be looking out of the window at kind of like places that that had been mentioned you know you can have to drive through flanders and, th- and places like that on, on when you're touring belgium as we often do um but but lots of stuff gets passed around you know i, I think there's lots of there's lots of things that we have similar taste in and, and lots of things we have we have different taste in obviously being in suede as well you know you're a band who create very vivid worlds you know from the lyrics and the music um what for you are the merits of songs as a way of telling stories that you know are different to novels oh i th- i think i think they're in t- an entirely different thing you know I, there's very few there's a couple of songs that that, that work as stories there's an amazing song called the bishonen by Momus, mm, which is yes. an incredible, an incredible short story and beautifully literate. Um, but most of most of the music that I really love is 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 far less comprehensible than a novel. It's far more, um, I guess, poetic and unfettered. You know, lots of the things, lots of the the, the songs that I absolutely loved when I was growing up. You know, the Bowies and. Um, uh, the Bunny Man and Psychedelic Furs and people like that. It was about kind of establishing a, a mood. It was about it was about summing up an emotion that you couldn't really put into words. And in that sense, you know, the the, the kind of lyrics of, of of those things they do something that's very different, I think, to a, to a novel. A novel tries to describe, and quite often, I think, a good song it, it, it kind of obscures. I was listening to. Um, First we take Manhattan oh, this morning. Great. Which is an incredible, incredible song. And I I'm, I must have listened to it a thousand times. Um and I've no idea what it's about. He said it's a song about terrorism, but you know, it's the, the stuff about the fashion business and about the, you know, the plywood violin and stuff. But what it does is it does something that I find really hard to do in literature. It puts me in a kind of imaginary place that I've never been before. And it, it stirs an emotion that I don't think there are words to fit to. And as I get older, that's more and more what I look for in music, that kind of magic, inexplicable thing. I mean, I like it in literature as well. It's just you're so hidebound by, by kind of structure and stuff with books in a way that you're just not with lyrics. When did you start to write? Um. I kind of started writing when I was a teenager and then I stopped for a long time. I mean, one of the things about, about being in suede, especially in the early years is it was kind of 24 seven, you know, we absolutely lived it and we lived in each other's pockets and there was like five or six years. I don't think I thought of a single thing that wasn't music that wasn't to do with suede. And as far as I was concerned, I'd always wanted to be a musician. I'd, I'd always wanted to be in a band um, and I was living exactly, it's very rare that you get to live exactly the dream that you had planned for yourself. So for a long time, reading, but especially writing, went out of the window. Um, it was only it was only once we were a bit more established and, and, and much later, I just, every now and then I would have an idea that it didn't make sense as a song. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Something would, would interest me. And I'm always like, all right, what do I do with this this idea? Um, and certain things 
came along that didn't feel like musical things. So I started writing short stories um, pretty much for myself, I think. It was only when the band split and I worked as, as a journalist and as a writer um, that I got used to the discipline of like deadlines and um, having to finish things. Um, that I found writing short stories, I, I just really enjoyed it. You know, once I'd got the kind of discipline of being a writer. Um, and I did that thing that I think a lot of authors do. I had all these short stories and I thought, right, I'm going to write a thread that links them all together and I'll have a novel. You know, it'd be like a David Mitchell thing, you know, and it'll flip from here to there, um, which I did. And it was terrible. I mean, it was, it was so kind of like split into little bits. But once I had kind of like 80,000 words that I'd written, just the idea, okay, writing a novel is not impossible. I've, all I've done is I've written a really bad one. <laughs> but I know at least I can write one. And I, next time I just have to make it good. That sounds like good advice. Um, you gave me some really good advice as well when I saw you earlier this year um, at the Curzon Cinema in Soho where Suede were having a playback, souped up surround sound playback mm. of your debut album. Um, and you said to me, um, you'd read this somewhere or somebody had told told you it, um, don't write about what you know, write about what you want to know. And I, that stayed with me. Can you share your wisdom with, with the wider listeners? <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's a really, really good good idea because unless you're writing exactly about your life, then you're going to have to do some research. Um, so don't saddle yourself with a whole load of research in something that you're not particularly interested in. You know what I mean? Think about something that, that, that snags your attention and then work from there. And, and it's kind of worked for me, you know, with the ghost theater, it, it came from a very small, it came from a documentary about um, a kid in 1601 who got kidnapped literally taken off the street to, to be an actor. And immediately, I ju it, it just, I think spending a lot of time being an artist, you, you recognize things that have a hook in them. And, and it was that. Immediately, I, I was like, oh, there's something here, there's something here, there's something here. Um, and I didn't, know, I know very little about Shakespeare. I never studied it. I know nothing about Elizabethan history. Um, but I was interested enough in it, and I, I knew I could tell a story about, about actors and performers that would work from it. Um, and, yeah, waiting to find that thing that, that, that pricks at your interest. I'm writing at the moment um, a kind of thriller, but it's, it's all based upon the fact that I read this article about a, like a futurist um, who was four billionaires paid him an absolute fortune to come and talk to them in the desert somewhere about what to do after the end of the world because they'd all built kind of like bunkers and cubby holes um, and all they wanted from him was they wanted to know how do we stop our servants from immediately slaughtering us and again I know nothing about the world of billionaires and I know nothing about the world of or at the time I knew nothing about the world of nuclear bunkers and stuff but straight away there's a story there and I'm just yeah. like okay I know I'm going to enjoy reading about the lunacy of billionaires and, <laughs> and underground hotels and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, you have to trust that if something fascinates you, that it'll probably fascinate other people. Brilliant. Um, okay, let's launch into the questions that I ask everybody um, on this podcast. You've sort of answered the first one a little bit, 
um, what was the first music you loved? But you might have loved stuff before, you know, the cool stuff, Bowie and Echo. Oh, yeah. I, well, I, think, <laughs> I think that I, I was thinking about this today. I was trying to work out. I think the two things that, 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 that I loved when I first got into music were, were the jam and Blondie. They were the kind of two sides of the coin for me. The jam was very much, oh, my God, he, he's someone like me. He came from kind of like the suburbs outside London. He was, wasn't much older than me. You know what I mean? Um, and there was that kind of recognition. I can totally, I can still remember, I was thinking about this today. I can remember the day that going underground went to number one, cycling back from, from school and just being like, like so thrilled by the idea, you know, because I thought it was, it was this kind of this thing between me and my friends, you know what I mean? This idea that, that it was number one, that it was, you know, it was kind of, kind of like at the center of culture. And the other side of that was Blondie, who were just impossibly cool, you know what I mean? That was the other, there's always been a kind of wanderlust and a kind of um, wanting this incredibly cool urban life. And I just, I just absolutely loved them and devoured everything that they did. And she has, I still think she has the most incredible voice still now. It's one of those weird things. I always think about Blondie that she'd be far, Debbie would be far better respected if she wasn't so beautiful because then people would focus on the fact she's just got mm. the most incredible voice. Mm, definitely. Um, who was the first music writer you loved? Well, I'm going to cheat here because I didn't really know who it was. I, I, I loved the music press. When I, when I was growing up, I was obsessive about it. Um, my parents weren't really into music and I didn't have an older brother or sister or anything like that. Um, so the, the music press was, was, was my older brother, really. Uh, and I, kind of, I started with smash hits, which didn't really give bylines. So I just thought there was one guy who was writing <laughs> this entire thing who was incredibly funny and knew everyone and you know was 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 connected um and then i i made my way to the enemy and the melody maker and for for someone like me you know i was i come from a very political family um and very interest, interested in politics and culture and stuff like that um i i had no kind of role models that that thought the things that I did and were interested in the things that, that I were and reading people writing about music with such seriousness and then with such joy. Um, it, it was really, it was really inspirational to me. Mm. You know, I think, I think we learned as a band to kind of poo poo the music press as we went on because it was just what you did. You know, <laughs> you didn't really yeah. want to be connected w with their part in your rise or whatever. Um, but you know, it, so much of, of my politics, my personal politics and, you know, down to, you know, not eating meat and stuff like that and, and the cultures that it brought to me, you know, again, there was nothing on the radio. I, I never heard any black music. I never heard any soul music or anything like that. It all came to me from, from the music press. Mm. Um, and the writers there and the people they wrote about were my guides, how to live a life really. Yeah. I absolutely, and I know you've read my book, you know, that was how it felt mm. for me as well. I was an oldest, I was the oldest sibling in the family, as you were. Yeah. Um, and did you ever kind of try and impose your musical taste on your brother Richard? I oh my God, no, not at all. He, he, used to, <laughs> he used to absolutely hate my musical taste. 
Um, it, it, it was very strange, yeah. I mean, me and Brett used to spend long, long hours listening to music. Um, and he would just be in the next room with his Mega City 4 turned up even louder. <laughs> we, were, we were very competitive as kids. And, you know, I think he had to, um, he had to kind of find his own little space away from my there's, there's lots of things now that, that that we have in common when when it comes to music but mm. um but not at the time i have to say i did love on his desert island discs how he picked uh, a suede song the way he talks about you it's very sweet um but it made me think a lot about that you know that sibling relationship and you know how so many people i've interviewed in you know the 20 years i've been doing this have talked about an older brother or an old mm. a friend of somebody who's older you know and, but yeah i similarly it was smash hits and then it was the enemy and the melody yeah you know uh, when i first met brett he was he was so much more musically experienced than me because i i wasn't aware of anything that that had happened pre the sex pistols really you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it was just this this desert of dad music, you know. <laughs> and and he had he had kind of like a mural of of Pink Floyd's The Wall on on his wall, and he had uh, Beatles portraits and stuff like that. And this stuff was like, you know, it was like the it, I don't know, it was like a history museum to me. <laughs> so you loved the music press. Did you go on to read music books um, after that? And if so, what was the first music book that you loved? I was thinking about this. I I had a ton of, I, I did. I, I, I would buy books on kind of like Bowie and Lou Reed and Patti Smith, all these kind of people, the people who you couldn't really get to, you know, they, they weren't, I wasn't seeing them live or anything like that. But I was thinking the first book that I absolutely loved, and it's a little bit later, is... Um, Wonderland Avenue by Danny Sugarman. All right, yeah. Which is brilliant. I've heard he of was, it, but not read it, no. Oh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. He managed, through some really strange kind of set of circumstances, to end up managing the doors when he was about 15. Um, and a 15-year-old view of, of the music <laughs> industry and the stuff that's going on uh, with the drugs and the sex and everything. It's just absolutely hilarious. This, this, this was kind of later in their career. And then he managed Iggy Pop. And the, the, the chapters with Iggy Pop, they're just the funniest things I've ever read. It's one of those books. It starts off with him in the emergency room with a doctor saying, you're going to be dead in a week if you don't, <laughs> if you don't change your life. You know, he'd been hanging yeah. out with, with the Doors and with Iggy Pop and everything like that. Um, but it kind of paved a way for, for, for like The Dirt, the Motley Crue book and things like that. It, it was the first one of those. But it's done with such teenage joy. And I, I have a theory that the best music books are written by kind of people on the edges of a scene that people who are right at the heart of it they don't really see what's what's magical about it because it's again it's 24 7 it happens mm. all the time it takes someone to be kind of on the edges um we talked a bit before about the that that nico book the songs they never play on the radio mm, yes which is brilliant because it's at the tail end of her success and it's scruffy and you see you suddenly see all the workings there's another brilliant book called Bromley Berlin, which is by a, a follower of, of kind of like Susie Sue in the early days. And, and they went to school together and everything. And again, you know, he misses, he misses the pistols at the hundred club and everything because they're <laughs> out partying, but it just, you get the kind of 
I don't know, you get to see the whole of the scene, which I think is really nice. And you're not falling into the, you know, cliches that other people might fall into. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. Um, I should say um, the Nico book um, is on a previous songbook podcast, Adele Stripe, the uh, author, um, talked brilliantly about that. Um, oh, it's, a, it's a brilliant book. It's so yeah. depressing, but it's brilliant. <laughs> it is interesting, those people on the edges of scenes as well. You're completely right. You know, I've, I was fascinated to read all the... Um, books by the wives and partners of the Beatles, you know, just because mm. it shows you some, you know, how the world hadn't moved on a lot and how things were still quite misogynistic, but they were in this very brand new world of fame, you know, yeah. but on the edges of it, obviously. So it's uh, really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's that whole thing that the, the 60s only happened to about 250 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, so t- on to today's book. Today's book is A Year with Swollen Appendices by Brian Eno, which is his diary from 1995. It was published in September 1996. He writes in the preface how he'd never managed to sustain writing a diary beyond 6th of January before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and me both, Brian. Actually, I did do a diary in 1993 <clears throat> documenting my teenage crushes, but that is thankfully hidden from most people. Um in this book, we get into a year in which uh, Brian made Outside with David Bowie, Passengers with You 2, the Help album for the charity War Child, which I remember very well getting uh, by in the first week. And he worked with Joe Wobble and James and did loads of other stuff. We also see him as a dad with young kids, getting fascinated with new technology. Back then, it was CD-ROMs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> remember them? Um, exactly, and he- yeah. And his frequent grumbles with um, West London buses as well. So it's quite a mix. Um, so, Matt, you chose this. Um, when did you first read it? What's your relationship with it? I first read it when it came out. Someone gave it to me. Um, and I, I reread it last week. I, I, there's, a, there's a 25th anniversary edition that someone gave me. And I reread it. And I realized, A, how much of it I remembered. Because there's so many brilliant ideas in it and so many brilliant turns of phrase, but also how much I'd kind of stolen from it and and repurposed it as my own, which I didn't realize I'd done. You know, all these ideas I thought I'd had about kind of culture and things like that. I'm suddenly rereading them here thinking, oh, my God, I just completely stole that. (laughs) 
Um, Can you give uh, us some uh, examples? Um, he he does this he does this brilliant thing where he says culture is everything that you don't have to do. So it's like you have to eat. So eating isn't culture. You don't have to add cardamom. You know that's <laughs> culture. And I, I've used that line so many times since. And it's a way I think about things a lot. But also, you know, when he's talking about, you know, um, what he does is is he looks for, for the frame to go round a piece of music to change the meaning of it. Um, and I was thinking, I was thinking about when when Suede made Night Thoughts. Um, which is, it's one long piece of music that mm. runs into each other with a film going through it. Um, and, and how much that idea came from him. Right. That idea that we had this music and we had a, it flowed in a certain way. How do, we, how do we make that interesting and how do we make it hold together? And the minute you put a, the film as a frame around it, it becomes something else. And it rubs up against things in in different ways and all these kind of things. Um, And so many of the ideas, just his ideas about accidents and how to use them and his ideas about repetition and stuff. um, I don't know. They they just, they really, really resonate with me. But in a weird way, I think the biggest thing about it is there's this – there's a division in the world between kind of generalists and 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 synthesists. So so people who who study one thing and go really deep into it, you know what I mean, and are yeah. absolute masters of it. You know, it's it's like um, like Jimi Hendrix. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just this masterful guitarist and wanted to find every single way that you could you know you could make that sound great. And then you have synthesists, you know, generalists like like like, like Eno, who is interested in everything. You know, one of the things that comes through the book is he, he switches between, um, you know, politics and Bosnia, and then he's interested in food, and then he's talking about, then he spends three days blowing up women's asses in Photoshop. Yeah. That, that's just what he likes. He, he just, he, he's really omnivorous, and he takes things from all these places. Um and that I think was really important to me. You know, it's I love people who do that, who who kind of bring these things together. And I think they're more important than we think. They're more important than than kind of virtuosos. Um, he just, I don't know. He has such a an enthusiasm. If he sees something, he just he wants to turn it into art. He wants to find a way of making it into something beautiful. And it's 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 really really inspiring to me still is did it make you reflect on you know where you were when you first read it i just looked up earlier on what you were doing in 95 dogma star came out in 94 um you did a huge tour in 95 with a new member of the band richard oaks sort of relatively new so you're readjusting to this new reality as a band um so when the book came out that was around the time coming up came out late 96 isn't it mm. so um you know you'd been through this very tumultuous early phase of suede and you were coming into this quite exciting new time mm. of suede um when you're reading details of you know the 
well, little events that are just happening that took me back to where I was at that point as a teenager. You know, did it make you think about who you were as a young man kind of engaging with this stuff? Yeah, well, one of the things it really, really brought home to me was just um, how ordinary a job it can be sometimes making making music. I mean, I love all the stuff of, of him and you two. In, <laughs> yeah. in the studio because he I mean he's he's pretty brutal you know what I mean and he'll say something like you know he'll be talking about uh, about a part someone's written and he'll say you know that's one of the advantages of being a poor mu- a poor musician you know yeah. you just stick at this one thing and I'm kind of like, oh my god you know a terrible thing to say but he's 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 great like that you know and him and Bowie being in they're in the studio and they they get a copy of um, Scott Walker's Tilt. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're terrified that it's going to be the same kind of record as theirs. And just there's, there's a sense of just the kind of the everyday nature of uh, of making records that I really liked from it. You know, I I loved the idea that that you two were in the studio with someone going, "Oh, that's just not very good. Oh, this yeah. is so boring." <laughs> You know what I mean? And the barrier was there, you know, going, oh, God, you know, Scott Walker's going to steal our thunder. There's something really democratising about that. Yeah. Which I absolutely loved. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. I mean, he talks about, he talks about one of my favourite pieces of, of music ever is his music for airports. It's one of the things I've probably listened to the most my entire life and he he gives it like two lines in here yeah yeah it's, it's such a, it's such a strange book in that way because you know i'm fascinated by how he did it and the fact that he's he's really happy with the prosaic you know he's really happy with something magical being made out of just repeating some notes and generative music and, and things like that he's really happy with um not pretending that it's this kind of magical process you know what I mean? It's not like it's not like the doors or something like that. You know, it it, it doesn't come through. You know, kind of like spiritual overload or something. That it's just that he sits and he does the work and he says this is interesting and stuff like that. And it's still magical. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I I really really like that. You know that 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 something can be utterly prosaic and have magical results. Because, because most most of the diary is pretty, pretty. It's pretty prosaic, apart from the fact that you know, kind of like Bill Clinton turns up and Pavarotti <laughs> turns up. But still, you know what I mean. He's kind of swimming, like you say. He's getting on the bus. He has days where everything goes wrong. He moans, you know. Mm. And he's talking to Pavarotti about you know, th- um, you know, cold medicine and Pavarotti's trying to help <laughs> exactly. him and stuff like that. You know, so you're, it's the kind of. It's not just the glamour, you know. Um, you know, it could have made me laugh in a lot of ways because you could see private eye, the private eye diary version of this so easily, you know. And there's bits where he admits early on, you know, at the time, um, he is married to um Anthea who manages all his stuff, and he says, you know, she basically does everything. I don't have to worry about my yeah. money, I, I'm really lucky, you know. He says that, but you know, I'm reading it. <laughs> going page by page going oh my god he's so lucky he can just whatever but he still gets frustrated with you know random things but yeah you'll see you'll have him 
on a really crowded bus trying to read a complicated text, (laughs) some complicated (laughs) philosophy. And then, you know, he's in, then he goes to Peter Gabriel's semi derelict house um, that he's doing up. And he thinks, oh God, he's a bit mad to be doing this. And then, yeah, Paul McCartney calls him up, but, uh, you know, and, but, but, you know, then he's at South Mim service station because his daughter's ill and he needs to get her something to eat or whatever, you know. It's, um, but there's the, a brilliant sense that all these things are, are kind of equal to yeah, him. Yeah, 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 definitely. You know what I mean? That, that, <laughs> that he, he, nothing is intrinsically interesting. I don't, I, he's, n- he's not interested in fame at all, I don't think, which, you know, is a product of him spending his entire life around it. He just, he always just, finds what's interesting and what's unusual about every situation he always finds he always finds the angle there's yeah. a brilliant thing which i think i think um caitlin moran wrote and she was writing it about um writing a column for a newspaper but i think i think it's really true she says um never write down the first idea you have because it'll just be, you know, receive the received opinion of you and the p- people around you. Never write down the second idea you have, because that'll be a reaction to it. But the third thing you think about it will be an original thought about this situation. Or, and I find it so useful when I'm doing loads of things. And Brian Eno is the master of that. He never does it the accept the the received way. He always finds something odd about it. He always finds what's genuinely interesting about it rather than rather rather than what what we expect it. And I think he's really good on you know, he he talks about Hollywood and he says what's depressing about Hollywood is is everyone aiming for the same target over and over again. Mm, mm. And the targets that he aims at, he's the only one aiming for doesn't matter if he gets a bullseye or not. He's he's still going to be closest. Yeah. It's um one one bit I found really interesting is well like a recurring theme in the diary seems to be about getting older. You know, it's interesting me reading these now. He's 46 to 47 writing mm. these and I'm 45. So could have I was and all these little conversations are getting in about um you know, him getting older and he's got to get reading glasses. On his birthday, he goes and gets a pair of reading glasses. Um, and he's worried about whether, you know, he is going somewhere different with his life or if he's, a, a, he, he talks about whether he's just a slowly fading flower, which kind of touched mm. me a little bit. Um, he, there's a bit where he talks about the feeling of things could just drift on like this, being quite successful and accruing the respect of sheer inertia, being praised for still being there. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting. Now, I thought it was interesting talking to you about this because, you know, you've had an, a, a quite an unusual experience, you know, um, talking of your musical career. You know, when you were young, Suede were huge, that all happened. Then you had the period where, you know, you weren't together and then you came back and you've had this success in a way that not, you know, you, you're not doing revival gigs like a lot of mm. bands are. You're, you've been making records now again for the last 10 years and, you know, filling out venues and you know doing really well with it um you know it must have been odd you know being in your you know going through your 40s kind of with this new kind of work happening you know did some of those doubts about you know um did some of the things Brian Eno writes about you know that process of getting older kind of chime with you in any way oh yeah totally and I love the fact that he's not comfortable in 
in just doing what he's done before. Yeah. Because, you know, he's made some of the most beautiful music of the of the 20th century. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of, I have a feeling that if I could, if I, if I could do a music for airports, I might just slip back into doing it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, w- what it took for us, and it's interesting that, that there's a quote somewhere, there's a quote in the book where he says, one of the benefits of a serious illness yes. is, having, is having to rethink your life. Um, and in a weird way, suede splitting was, you know, it was kind of like a, a serious psychic <laughs> illness. Um, and that sense of, of being kind of wiped out and starting again and and learning what's important, learning what you're doing just because you do it every day and learning what w- what's important and what matters, I think it's almost impossible to fake it. Mm. You know what I mean? I I think you have to go through some doubts and some loss to really appreciate what you've got. You know, and, and with Suede at the moment, it is that sense that it could end at any point. You know what I mean? Especially now, now that we're older and we've seen people, we've lost people. You know what I mean? You're much, much more aware that, it won't last forever. And it's one of those things, if, if you told me 25 years ago that, I would say, yeah, I understand that. I understand that. But you can't make yourself feel it. No. You can't make yourself feel the preciousness and, and the fragility of it, um, which is why I'm kind of incredibly grateful that we went through the breakups. We wouldn't be the band that we are now. And it, it wouldn't be as sweet I don't think, you know what I mean? Still now, you know, like having a having a, a proper hit album last year, it was genuinely, I, I felt so great about it in a way that I really hadn't felt since probably the first record. Because, right. you know, once the expectations are there, then you're just exploring your own patch of ground. And it's really yeah. nice to feel like you're, you're breaking ground again. Oh, that's lovely. Um, I, as somebody who was there at that 2010 Teenage Cancer Trust gig, when you know that whole th- new kind of features seemed to open up after that night, you know, yeah, it's been, it was so strange. lovely to see. Are there any other parts of the book we haven't mentioned? Um, as we round up, um, I've, I'm looking at my notes here. June the 20th, in studio at 4 30 a.m., finish Michael Stipe's trousers. The wall chart fashion show, <laughs> he does that, yeah, that weird uh, fetish wear thing as well, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I think for people who haven't read it, uh, uh, it's really funny, yeah. It's it's really funny all the way through. It's it, it's just the way he looks at things. You know, um, there's a point where he says that he's beginning to think that all of the world's problems can be solved by either backing vocals or oyster sauce. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think anyone else could, could really say that. Or the bit where, where he's in he's in Belgium and pitches a book, the book of great Flemish noses. <laughs> Which he pitches completely seriously to Dave Stewart, <laughs> you know, as a kind of like one of these big art books. It, it's very funny. Um, I think it's really prescient as well. There's a couple of things in there. There's a brilliant thing where he's talking with, with Stuart Brand about, about the internet. Yeah. And remember, this is kind of like, you know, um, 95 or whatever. And he's talking about 
the internet and the power of, of connecting people. And he says, oh, right after right after doing that, um, I saw the news of the sarin gas attack in Tokyo. And it made me realize that being ultra connected might be much more dangerous than not being connected. And he kind of, he saw that the, the biggest flaw, I think, in the kind of like internet culture, this fact that being incredibly connected makes you incredibly vulnerable mm. if you can get if you can get the equivalent of sarin gas through you know through through memes and misinformation and stuff and there's loads of points in there it was only at the end i realized quite how early it was in terms of kind of like technology and stuff and how he was just you know years ahead in his thinking he was already seeing some upsides but also some downsides really really cleverly Mm. Just lovely how he's talking about trying to, you know, get his children to engage with, uh, you know, stories on CD-ROMs. That's really made me realise, you know, how much things have changed. You know, how yeah, exactly, technology exactly, has yeah. completely taken us beyond stuff. Oh, and I was also going to ask you. Obviously, the War Child album. You recorded chip building for that. We did. Yeah, we don't get a mention. You, you know, don't. No, I did. No. I did check that, Matt. I mean, obviously, the, with any book that's set in kind of like post like nineteen eighty, that's the first thing I do is check the index just to see if you know if we mention we don't get mentioned. Yeah, I mean, War Child was. Um, I I hadn't realised quite how involved in it he he was because it was one of those very strange things where you just get a phone call, you say yes, and. It was, I mean, it was like two days later that we were in the studio with, with, with Langer and, and Win Stanley. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he is very kind about lots of people, so I'm assuming that in fact he never mentions that track or us. And he mentions <laughs> those, but he probably hated it. You know, I, mean? I know, I know he's 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 a close friend and fan of, of Robert Wyatt, so so maybe he thought we'd kind of desecrate it. <laughs> well, uh, that's the first time I ever heard that song. I have to say, in and uh, so that was my introduction. So I can thank. Oh, you. great! Thank you for that. It's a lovely version. Um, thanks so much, Matt, for bringing a year in swollen appendices into songbook. Um, the twenty fifth anniversary edition is out now published by Faber at 20 pounds and there is a nice preface at the beginning looking at how those 25 years have changed with a whole list of words that have uh are terms that have been invented since then it's quite read- depressing isn't it the, the, <laughs> list, the list of things we've been thinking about over the last 25 years yeah ASMR bendy bus yeah etc but oh yeah anyway um border force UK oh goodness it's all going on um but thank you Matt um and to close the episode, um, as I've pre-warned you, we ask our guests to choose a book song, um, a song inspired by a work of literature. Um, what's yours? I've chosen uh, Red Right Hand by Nick Cave, um, which um, it comes from, I, th- I, I think, just one line in Paradise Lost uh, by Milton about religious vengeance coming with a red right hand. And from that, he's written... I mean, it's it's like a film, a, a film uh, screenplay in in kind of twenty lines. It's this br- brilliant little vignette about a man with a red right hand, kind of like wreaking vengeance wherever he goes. Um, I've always loved it. It's, it's musically, it's great. It's got those big chimes at the beginning, mm. which are you know, kind of there's something so it's like a western or something like that. But also, 
again, he's just so good with words. There's a line, you're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan. And he sings it with such relish yeah. <laughs> of someone who, who's making words do exactly what he wants. It's, it, it's a fantastic song. Uh, very sinister, but quite funny as, again. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for your time today. Um, no, thank you for having me on, Jude. What's fun. next for you? Finishing your new uh, book, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. Finishing a new book. Um, we're in the midst of writing a suede record, which is sounding incredible at the moment. Um, we're touring in Asia with the Mannix uh, in November. Yeah, Ooh. it's it, it's it's really really busy at the moment, um, but it's all it's all good stuff. I'm loving this um, friendship with you and the Mannix because you've done this double-headed tour um, elsewhere as well, haven't you? And when I saw you in Cardiff earlier this year, the Mannix sent you a Welsh-themed hamper, which I thought was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> we, we, we first played with them back in – they supported us on a European tour in 93, 94. Um, um, I love them. They're great. They're, 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 they're just fantastic people. They're a brilliant band who they're so willful. They do exactly what they want um, and they manage to be massive doing it, but not by aiming to be massive. But they're also, I mean, they're lovely people. They're, they're lovely people to tour with. They're, yeah. you know, they're funny and they're social and um, they let you play with their guitars. So, and, you know. and, and I'm sure they'll pass you their books as well, right? I, bet um, they will. I, I don't know. Last time I said, uh, last time I spoke to Nikki about it, he was like, "Oh, I don't know about reading fiction at my age." <laughs> Classic Nikki Wire. <laughs> and still, you know, every one of their set lists has some brilliant quote from some book that he's been reading. So, so it's not true. Oh, brilliant! Well, we look forward as well to you playing with them next year, which is very yeah. Next, next summer, we're doing some big outdoor shows with them, which I, which I can't wait for. Yeah fantastic well thank you so much matt for today um thanks for listening everyone and i'll see you for the next episode this has been a white rabbit and carmelite studios production presented and written by jude rogers music by david holmes episode producer jake alderson editor dan jones deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 